When she moved into the home, she finally became a completely real person to me. And I'd love to get into all of this with her, adult to adult, and hear the whole story from her mouth and find out what she really thinks about class, about freedom, about being a mother, about being a nurse in the wartime, about marrying my granddad. I want to hear this story, but without my embellishments. But I don't know how to ask. Ow, as an expression of pain in English, is identical to ow as an expression of pain in Romanian. <laughs> and for some reason, at five years old, the idea that the language of pain was universal <laughs> was really comforting to me. And so I thought, I'll get through this. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Welcome to a Getting Better Acquainted Extra where some of the themes from this week's episode are going to be expanded on in the form of two stories. The first is from my guest, Patricia. She did this story at a Spark London night in the Canal Cafe Theatre in Little Venice in London. And I was there that night. I was backstage live tweeting the event. While I was listening to this story, I was selecting quotes from it. It was quite an interesting moment really because Spark London stories are supposed to be seven minutes long generally speaking and Patricia had rehearsed this story with Joanna Yates who runs Spark London the night before and it had been within seven minutes but something happened to Patricia when she was up on that stage. Some doors opened, some things that she wanted to say came out and the story ended up being much longer than the normal seven minutes quite an epic length for a Spark London night. And where better to house a long-form story than on Getting Better Acquainted? You can find out more about Spark London, their live nights and podcast over on www.sparklondon.com. And after Patricia's story, we're going to have a story from me that I told at Stand Up Tragedy. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that story once we've listened to Patricia tell hers. I had a really beautiful childhood in Romania. I, apart from the fact that I had, I loved my family and I had great friends, I have vivid, very vivid memories of my kindergarten where we would get in the morning, the children, and our meals were prepared for us every day. So when it was time for lunch, we would be served three full courses, a soup, a main, and a dessert that had just come out of the oven or off the stove. And we would be served like, like in a restaurant. And then it would be playtime and all of the toys were very neatly stored in cupboards. And as soon as we got at them, the children, they would just go everywhere. So we had, all, we had everything. We had Legos. We had more traditional building blocks. We had those connect things that you sort of 
squashed together. We had dolls, we had everything. And I loved them all. And in fact, I remember it, to this day, because the toys got everywhere and under everything, when, we, when it was time to clean up, my method, and, and I still have this instinct today when I have to clean something up, to take my shirt or whatever I'm wearing and use it as a makeshift wheelbarrow and just put things in and then just dump. And I, I was very good at using Legos to build uh, Soviet-style apartment buildings. <laughs> And, and I had this, despite the fact that I loved building, I had a, a fascination with kitchen replicas, like little saucepans, little... Not necessarily because I think I envisioned a future where I was in the kitchen all the time, but just more, I had a, a very all-encompassing obsession with things that were my-sized. You know, I was four. Things that were me-sized, I loved. And... For some reason, kitchen things just really struck me because you can, you can make a small Lego, and that's just a small Lego, but a small saucepan, there's a beauty to it. And I, I idolized my grandmother, and so she had her apron, and she made me a little four-year-old-sized apron. And I had this fantasy, right, where I was in my little apron with my little saucepans in a little kitchen, preferably in the corner of my grandmother's actual kitchen, so I could just follow her and do everything she did. And I would dream, like literally dream about this in kindergarten during nap time. And, and even then, at the age of four or five, I thought, I shouldn't let this go too far, right? This is, this is too fanciful. This is never going to... My whole life will be disappointment. And actually, nap time at this daycare center, we each had our own Murphy bed that we would pull out of the wall, and every day there would be freshly cleaned, pressed sheets for all of us. And when I was five, my family immigrated to the US. And I'm gonna tell you the extent of my English at this point. I knew Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which is quite universal. I knew a very short poem that went, uh, Wake up little Freddy, breakfast is ready. <laughs> and I knew that my last name translated to Forrester in English. That was it. And this was the knowledge that I had when my, my mother walked me to my first day of kindergarten in Boston. And we walked up to the school, and all of the children were playing outside. And at, it was at this point that it actually hit me that they wouldn't understand me. Because I love children. I love well. I say that now, it's a little creepy. But I mean, I loved, I just loved being around people and, and I really wanted to play with them and I just didn't have the tools. And I was a little bit crestfallen. And my mom walked me up to my classroom door and she said, you know, you can take it from here, you'll be fine. And I was a little upset and I walked through the door of the classroom and the classroom was arranged just so that when I walked through the door I could see the opposite corner and in that corner was a complete, fully, like, splashed-out miniature kitchen. I'd walked into paradise. And I can't tell you, like, my flesh was a tremble. Like, I wanted to get in there. And, um, and in another corner, we had, like, building blocks. In another corner, we had little cars. And I loved all of this stuff, but I wanted to be in the kitchen. And none of the other kids were playing, and so I thought, I'll do what they do. You know, I don't want to, I'll be good. 
and um, and the first thing that happened is the teacher took roll, and I and I wanted to start start off on the right foot, so I thought I'll be very helpful and I'll translate my name for her. So I said, I'm here. I'm Patricia Forrester. And she had Patricia Padurian on her, on her sheets. She was very confused, and I didn't have enough English. You know, twinkle, twinkle, little star wasn't going to get me through the situation. I didn't have an, enough English to be able to explain, you know, she couldn't ask me, do you mean Padurian? I also didn't know how to say my name in English, how to say Padurian, because that's not how you say it in Romanian. So it was just, and she let it go. I have a feeling it caused some administrative difficulties for my mother. But she let it go. She wasn't going to send me outside. And, and then it was playtime. And we had 15 minutes in each PlayStation. And I willed with my entire being to be sent to the kitchen first. And I was. <laughs> and it was a key moment in my life. Very few times has something like that happened where what I really wanted happened. And I ran into the kitchen. and I was, But I couldn't play with anybody because we couldn't communicate. So it was a little bit disappointing. And then we made our way around. And then it was nap time. And I didn't realize this. Just a strange thing started happening. The, the kids would go to their cubby holes, and they took out beach towels and spread them on the floor, which was stone, and curled up on them. And that was nap time. And I think the idea that a flimsy beach towel would be the only thing separating her daughter from a stone-cold floor was so barbaric an idea to my mother that she sent me there without a beach towel, so I didn't have one. And I think, I think there was an extra, because I do remember curling up on the stone floor thinking, I have to be here for 30 minutes. Um, and it didn't really help my mood. And then after, after lap time, we had story time. And there was an upright piano in the middle of the room, and the teacher played us some songs, and I was into that. Um, one, of, one of them was Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, so you know. Um, <laughs> She sang us songs, and then she read us a book. And I'll be honest, it's not so into the book, because at this point, English, I couldn't even distinguish words. It was just sounds, you know? So I was sitting there cross-legged, really bored, and the kitchen was, like, right here in my peripheral vision. It was just like, I want to be in there. And, and, I, and, I was, and I was thinking, I was bored, and I was looking around, and I realized I really missed my life. I missed my home. I missed my friends, I missed my grandparents, um, and I was so open to this new experience, but it really, like, you know, it just, it was just the first day, but still, I didn't really feel at home, and then I realized that the little boy sitting in front of me was the spitting image of this boy, Danutz, that I'd grown up with in Romania. Um, he was born, like, three months after me, so we have known each other from the first moment, it is possible for a human being to know another human being. And it was, it was him, you know. Obviously it wasn't, but it looked just like him. And again, I thought, it worked the first time. I'll just will with my whole being for that to be the notes. Because I just really wanted to be back there with my friends. And I did, and I'm sure you'll all agree, the only thing logical to do in this situation, I poked him really hard in the kidney. <laughs> And he went, ow! And he turned around and he glared at me. And in this moment, I knew that everything would be all right. <laughs> because, ow, as an expression of pain in English, is identical to ow as an expression of pain in Romanian. 
And for some reason, at five years old, the idea that the language of pain was universal <laughs> was really comforting to me. And so I thought, I'll get through this. Um, and I did, but it wasn't all roses. So I'll tell you about a few things that happened along the way. Um, one of my main difficulties was the fact that at this kindergarten, we had designated toilet times. Why? I don't know. Um, so, we, you know, two or three times a day, they would line us all up and take us to the toilets. Now, my bladder has never accepted anybody as its master. <laughs> and I never had to pee when they took us to pee. I would always have to go to the toilet afterwards. And because I didn't know how to express that, I would just, I'd hold it in until I couldn't anymore, and I would wet myself. And it didn't take long for my mom to figure out what was going on, so she taught me to say, I have to go to the bathroom. And the next day, I was playing, you know, and, and I felt the familiar pressure on my bladder. And panic set in, and I ran up to the teacher, and I think through the, like, reptilian brain response and panic, what should have come out as, I have to go to the bathroom, came out as, go to the bathroom, <laughs> as an imperative to her to go and empty her bladder. But it worked. She figured it out. And so, it, you know, things went on. Things improved over time. And after about two months, I was getting used to my new life, to my routine. And it was just before lunch. And I was standing around. Everyone was in their PlayStations. No cross-contamination of toys here, by the way. Everything stayed in its corner. And I had my hand in my pocket like this, in my trouser pocket. And I pulled it out. And sometimes this happens. I pulled out the lining like this. And I had my lunch money in my pocket, and it was in coins. It was only a dollar, because it was 1993. And they all spilled out, and they went everywhere. And everyone was busy playing. No one noticed, except this girl, Vanessa, who was the ideal of American beauty to me. She had very small, doll-like features. She had long, shiny black hair. She was everything I wanted to be. And she saw the coins, and she, helped, she started helping me pick them up. And I, I felt really warm, you know, like, like I'd finally made a friend and I was so happy. And I picked up, she got most of them because they rolled toward her. And I picked up my 20, my 20 cents and she had like the 80. And I smiled, my biggest smile at her and I held out my hand for the money. And she looked around and then she gave me a surprisingly shrewd look for a five-year-old and put <laughs> the money in her pocket. And... I felt like I'd left this existence and gone to a different plane of existence, just the feeling of injustice, especially after thinking I just made a friend. But also, I wanted to, to say things. I wanted to say, like, that's not yours. Give it back. And every time I opened my mouth, I'd hit this wall because I didn't know the words. I didn't know enough English. And I, and I, I, and I, I ran to my teacher and I remember even now, like, I'm a tall person, but I, I, I still feel small. I still feel like I can go back in my body. And I feel, and I can see my teacher's hand sort of dangling right over my face, feeling so little. And I put my hand in her hand and I tugged it. And it was so nice to have my hand in somebody else's. Not that that didn't happen on a regular basis, but just I felt protected. And I pulled down her hand and she turned around and she asked me what was, what was up. And I hit the same wall again because I didn't, I didn't know 
how to say anything. I, I At that point, I'd never had the occasion to learn the words, that girl took my money. And so all I did was say, Vanessa, Vanessa, over and over again, and point to where, to the scene of the crime. And she, that wasn't enough. She didn't understand. And so I went without lunch. But I didn't know enough English to explain that, so I stood in the lunch line anyway and bought what I could with 20 cents, which was a carton of milk. And it sounds like this took a long time. In fact, I went from zero English to fluent in three months, which is the advantage of being five years old. (laughs) And what happened was I think the shock of learning a new language so quickly, and this happens a lot to children who move when they're young, who immigrate, Um, I think it's called like the one and a half generation, that the new language kind of replaces the old one. So my parents would speak to me in Romanian, but I would reply in English. And I don't think my mom cared so much, but my dad said, this will not do. And as soon as my parents could get the money together, they sent me back for the summer, which was good. After two weeks, I was back to, you know, my old Romanian, and it was like no time had passed. And I was so excited because I thought I'm going home. And I missed my neighborhood, and I missed my friends. Most of all, I missed my grandparents. And I got back, and all the same people were there. But something was different, and I didn't really feel the same sense of acceptance, and I didn't know what it was, because nobody said it to my face. But one day, I heard two girls talking when they thought I I wasn't there. And one one was saying something. She just mentioned my name in passing to the other. And the other said, Oh, Patricia, that idiot from America. And my initial thought was, no, no, no. Patricia, that idiot from here. (laughs) I'm from here. This is my home. And they were really cruel to me. Well, not just to me. This was kind of what it is, what it's like to be seven years old in Romania in the summer when no one's watching you. Like, boys would chase after me holding these beetles that I was sure would kill me and then pick my body apart with their pincers. When we were climbing trees, they would look up my skirt, um... When we were standing around, they would pull my shorts down. This wasn't like just exclusively directed at me. This is what it's like to be a girl in Romania. But it, it really, the other girls weren't any help. And the way you deal with this situation as a girl is um, you fight back. You hit them. You run after them and you hit them. And I could run fast. I could catch up. But I'm a lover, not a fighter. So... I, I didn't do anything. And, and at this point, I still felt like if I could just prove myself to them, like I did in the States, you know, if I could just make them see that I'm not stupid, that I'm not, you know, whatever they thought I was, they'll accept me. And my grandmother kind of took advantage of the situation as I wasn't eating very well. And one day she said, Patricia, I know you're having trouble with your friends. And, you know, I've noticed you're very pale And I I wonder, I think maybe if you ate more tomatoes, they would put some, because they're red, they would put some color in your cheek. And then maybe, and then, you know, I think your friends would be more accepting. And, and and, And that summer, I swear, I ate so many tomatoes. And it didn't work. And I, I, I went back every summer for a long time. And the older I got, the worse the abuse got. And they never cut me off completely because we'd grown up together and their parents and my family were friends. That's just not done. But they would be subtly cruel to me and sometimes they would be overtly cruel. And the biggest change happened between the summer when I was 12 and the summer when I was 13. Because when I was 12, we were still playing hide and seek 
I got there the summer when I was 13 and all of a sudden everyone was smoking and everybody was, you know, like they wanted to go out clubbing, children's clubs, but still. And I felt even more ostracized because I wasn't, I, that's not where I was in my development. And that summer, all the children of the neighborhood got together and all our families paid for us to go to this camp by the Black Sea. And we got on a train. Now, this is a journey to cross Romania that takes eight hours by car. It takes 16 hours by train, if you're lucky. And these are the same trains that they've been using since, like, the 1970s, possibly earlier. Obviously no air conditioning. So just imagine being in a tin for 16 hours. Like, you buy a two-liter bottle of Pepsi halfway through the journey. It's basically reached boiling point sitting here with these people who don't like you and the only person you can really talk to is the one chaperone so now your teacher's pet and that's that makes it even worse and at one point the conductor came around to check our tickets and you show the ticket and you show your id but i didn't have a national id because i didn't live there i only had my passport which said that i was a resident of the united states and this isn't ideal i'm not saying this happens all the time but sometimes they'll ask for money and so my teacher said, let's not even make you deal with this. When the conductor comes to our coach, I'll take you to the bathroom and you can just hide out there. And she did. And now the, the bathroom is an enclosure, you know, like basically this big. And the toilet is just a hole. And I had this strange flashback because I just stood there singing these songs that my grandmother had sung to me to get me to sleep, watching the world go by through the hole. And I had a flashback to when I was three on the train with my dad. And I had to, you know, once again, my bladder asserting its independence, I really had to go to the bathroom. But I was scared I, I would fall through, which is a physical impossibility. But there you go. And I, and I kind of realized, like, I've come so far. And those eight days in camp were hell. I mean, the kids read my diary one girl decided that um, my, sh my elbow was a good ashtray, so she put her cigarette out on my elbow. And something changed, and I felt like a weird zen about it. Like, I didn't have fun, but whatever. You know, I thought, it'll be over. And on the train back, it was in the middle of the night, so at least it was a little bit cool. Everybody was asleep. And I, I woke up, and I saw all of these kids around me sleeping. And I thought... We're going home. And I thought, well, they're going home. I'm going to go home in two weeks to America. So they can do what they want, but I'm leaving. And ultimately, their biggest punishment is that they're going to have to stay here. And they're going to have to live here in a world without the magic of this five-year-old-sized kitchen. They'll never get to experience that. And I really think that was the first moment I consciously thought of myself as American. Thank you. So, in a way, this next story that you're going to hear, told by me, chimed with some of the themes of what Patricia's talking about, I think, in terms of grandparents. Grandparents have been particularly important to Patricia, I think, 
from her conversation, from her stories, and from what I know of her as a friend. And my grandmother passed away earlier this month. Talking to Patricia on Facebook, I understand as well that her grandfather passed away this month too. So it's a sad month for grandparents, it seems, on getting better acquainted. This story you're about to hear is about my grandmother and about my grandfather. Yesterday I came back from my grand's funeral and it was a time when the family did pull together in a way that was functional, which was a great relief to me and a time when we could all get together and be there for each other listen to each other and say goodbye to somebody who's no longer with us. So this story was told as part of Stand Up Tragedy at the Edinburgh Festival earlier this year and it was told when my gran was still alive. You can find out more about Stand Up Tragedy at www.standuptragedy.co.uk Next Thursday, we're having a tragic Christmas where I'll be telling some more stories about my family, but there'll also be lots of other performers, comedians, storytellers, musicians. It's a really great lineup. And that's happening at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 12th of December. That's this coming Thursday. It starts at 7.30. It's really going to be a great night. So come along and share some tragic Christmas with us. And now, here's me telling a story. So, our next performer is come a, a lot. He's going to have to travel a long way to get to the stage because he's already on it. So, uh, this is me. I am Dave, as I said earlier on, and I'm going to do uh, a kind of true story called "Say It with Flowers." The understanding I have of my grandparents' lives is fake. It comes to me in Chinese whispers from biased observers. It sloshes around in my imagination until it seems to make some narrative sense. My gran grew up in a small village in Yorkshire. She milked the family cow every day before walking ten miles to school on her own. Everything was black and white back then. Everything was bought to last. Life was frugal. And you grew into your shoes. My granddad grew up in India, a child of the Raj. His family rode on the back of elephants, and they shouted demeaning things at the natives, and then laughed heartily, twirling their waxed moustaches. Now that's the plastic flower version of their story, brightly coloured, unreal, and vaguely comical. Very vaguely, it seems.、Uh, a plastic flower looks like a real flower from a distance. But what do I actually know about them? Gran was born into a working-class Yorkshire family. She married a man from a different class and rewrote herself into the role of a respectable lady. Grandad was born into a posh white family in India, and he was sent to England as a child when he contracted tuberculosis. For most of his life, he was a doctor, and he was a conscientious objector in both the wars. When they met, there was fireworks. Or maybe air raid sirens. The Second World War was happening around them. She was a nurse, and he was a doctor. 
She was thrilled to meet a man descended from the aristocracy, a professional in a white coat, no less. He spoke properly. She liked that. Sure, he was a socialist, but that's just politics. That's men's talk, and she had no interest in any of that nonsense. That nonsense was the flaw in her plan. She would never truly find class because Grandad refused to become a private consultant. He remained committed to the National Health Service and she felt that that commitment held them back. I now see Gran as someone stumbling through her life in her own way. Same as me, same as my mum, same as everyone I know. I'm not saying she's nice. Every old and frail person has probably hurt people in their lives. But I see her as someone who's had a life, and that has to be respected. I never had that with Grandad. He used to play chess with us. He always won. He didn't really speak. He looked wooden like his chess set, worn, tall and thin. I always saw him as an ent, wise, not too hasty. And when he died, I was given a wooden elephant that came from the Raj, and I love that elephant. One of its tusks comes out. The chairs in that house were uncomfortable. Everything looked like the Queen might have bought it. And there were all sorts of rules about which bit of cutlery that you used first. All of the adults were tense for reasons that you couldn't understand. And children were to be tolerated and silent. On the tables were bowls of things that looked a little bit like Bombay mix, but turned out to be something called potpourri. <laughs> uh, the taste of dried flowers in my mouth and the stifling silence all around me. Everything smelled unnatural. That's how I remember it. This strict woman terrorised my mother, passing the terrors down the line, these terrors that passed from my mum to me. I heard the stories and I could see it in her eyes. Gran was a pantomime villain. Now she isn't anymore. Now she's just an old lady living in an old house full of old people in the countryside just outside Bath. She has tea and cake every day at 3pm. She regularly lunches with a lady. They wear Easter bonnets at Easter and they get their children to tend their gardens and they have staff to look after them. In a way, she's finally made it to exactly where she wanted to be. But she gets angry with the deer and the rabbits. They eat her flowers. They don't know that humans find them decorative. They just think that they're tasty. Which is fair enough, I think. My mum and I once sat with her drinking sherry from dusty glasses and she told us about her life during wartime. She'd been a nurse in Blitz-Addled London. And when she talked of it, she seemed younger. I suddenly saw the girl from a small village who had gone to a big city being bombed and found... Excitement, freedom, and something that sounded like independence. I was shocked to hear such feeling in her voice, surprised that she was nostalgic for a time of war. It remained bright and light in her memory. It struck me then that I might have liked the woman she'd been for those few months before she'd met my granddad, before she'd found the mask to put on. When she moved into the home, She finally became a completely real person to me. And I'd love to get into all of this with her, adult to adult, and hear the whole story from her mouth and find out what she really thinks about class, about freedom, about being a mother, about being a nurse in the wartime, about marrying my granddad. I want to hear this story. 
but without my embellishments. But I don't know how to ask. So instead, when I'm around, which is rarely, I go and visit her with my mum. The last time we went, mum stopped at a shop on the way and suggested I buy her flowers. Gran loves flowers. She has them all around her room, beside the carefully placed bric-a-brac, and she arranges everything just so. I once went to her old house in Limpley Stoke with my mum to stick post-it notes on the things that I might want. I didn't want much, but I wanted something. The bits of property that I salvaged from that house are ways to try and understand the lives of the people whose genes are inside me. Understanding who they were might help me understand who I am. So I stuck day-glow bits of paper on a few strange-looking bits of furniture and the old school bell that Gran had used to call my mum and her sister down for dinner when they were children. The instrument of my mum's torture now sits on my windowsill. It felt nice to be useful to my mum, the sort of thing that proper sons do. Visiting Gran in the old people's home is the same sort of thing, a taste of being a good grandson. The last time we visited, she took us out into her gardens and we stood looking down at the flower beds. Mum explained that she put sticks down to try and stop the animals. Gran sighed. These creatures are determined. They think the flowers are vegetables. <laughs> She's always had a fake voice and she puts the stresses in all the wrong places. Don't tell anyone, will you, dear? But I use fake ones. On top of her ruined flowers, Gran puts plastic flower heads. I smile at her. Don't worry, Gran. I won't tell anyone. That's the end. I don't really know what rest in peace means. I don't really know what passed away means. I, I don't know what I believe about all of that stuff. I suspect that there is no afterlife. But there is a kind of afterlife. Because once you die, you live on in some way in the memories of the people who knew you and in the stories that they tell and that then in turn are told to other people. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.